but God is not a lying God. That has not been my personal relationship or expectation or involvement with God. So if someone presents something that seems antithetical to what God has spoken to my Black queer radical heart, I don't pick it up. And they can call that what they'd like. People can say that we are picking and choosing which part of the text to live out and be a part of. And also as someone who is like famously anti-institution, it's just not something that has the power to shift me like it did. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Ben Tapper, and today I am joined by he who is without comparison, Matt Burke. Hey, Matt. Now, see, so you changed the format. It's usually in something. Indomitable, immutable. I ran out of in words. That's the problem. <laughs> I had to switch it up. <laughs> well, see, now you threw me. Now I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> Just say it's good to be here. It is good to be here, everyone. Today, we will be having a conversation or listening to conversations related to the experiences of members of the LGBTQ community. And explicitly, we're going to hear from three people that identify as black members of the LGBTQ community and just learn about their experiences in church and congregational life, both those experiences that have been affirming and those that have been trying at times and what they have learned and gleaned from those experiences or what they've learned and gleaned from those moments. And I'm excited about that conversation, Matt. I don't know how you're feeling about it. Yeah, definitely excited about the conversation as well. And, you know, we just wanted to let people tell in their own words their own stories. And again, we are not pushing any kind of theological or spiritual agenda here. This is not meant to state that you need to have a specific stance around these types of things. But it's just a recognition that in our society, we have people who have a different understanding of gender identity different understanding of their sexuality. They exist in our society, and I think it behooves us as congregational members, congregational leaders, to understand what that landscape looks like. And so we just invited these folks to come and tell their stories so that we can learn from them about what life is like from that perspective. Well said. And each of these interviews, I think, was phenomenal, and the insights they shared was great. And so Matt and I don't feel a need to add our words to the wisdom that they've already shared. And so with that said, we're just going to kick it over to those interviews and let you hear from the guests themselves. Today, we are joined by Jessica Jess Louise. 
Jess is a black, radical, queer abolitionist, community organizer, and facilitator, a third-generation Christian church disciples of Christ. Jess has served at the local, state, and national levels of DOC, participating in inaugural anti-racism cohorts through the Babel Table, mentoring youth of the General Youth Council, and co-planning the youth tracks for General Assembly. Though Jess is no longer active in the church, they devote their time to working with systematically marginalized folks to realize their historical, present, and future power in community through direct action, mutual aid, and political education. Jess remains committed to truth and equity by any means necessary. Jess, it is a blessing to have you join Matt and I today. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. That was a marvelous introduction. I love the By Any Means Necessary. Shout out to our boy Malcolm, uh, RRP. So I love that tie in there. And, and to be clear, you're talking about the content of it, not the reader, because that sounded a bit self-congratulatory, Ben. That was a great introduction you know, by me. I mean, sometimes you just got to call out your own greatness. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, not everyone will do it for you. So why not? Oh, y'all are fun. Y'all are fun. Yes, the content. Thank you, Matt. So, Jess, we're here to talk about the experiences of LGBTQ plus folks in congregational life, right? This is a big topic, has been for a while, will continue to be. And so we wanted to hear from the voices of people who have lived this firsthand and have some time and were formed by the church even. So that's why it's a blessing to have you on. I think I'd like to start out by just wondering, what would you name as those experiences when you think about how you grew up in the church, the ways you've worked with different denominational bodies, what were the experiences that you felt were affirming to your faith, your personhood, and your identity? Sure. So I went to a very Black church. It was a historically Black church, presently Black church. It's the second or third largest Black congregation in Indianapolis, if not the state. So there were some traditions that carried over, you know, from Southern Baptists and everything, but they were also very progressive in some ways. So on one hand, of course, purity culture was, you know, up and running, but that was the case for a lot of faith formations, especially like in the 90s going into the 2000s when we saw how people were interpreting HIV and AIDS. And we even saw like a church response to that. I think there was, I forget the denomination, but they put out a really expansive like toolkit for it. So on the one hand, like we participated in purity culture and, you know, purity culture in that context is really rooted in like heteronormativity. So it's like a man, a woman, there's nothing else. There were people in the church that like people knew were gay or queer or whatever, but it wasn't something that was spoken out loud. So we had some conservative values, but then on the other hand, there were some very progressive initiatives. I had a summer internship in high school where I was doing sexual education around the city as kind of like a peer-to-peer education thing. And I did it at my church in my youth group. Not necessarily as, you know, a queer youth, because that wasn't something that was allowed at the time, but just as someone, you know, who participated in the activities. I think overall that the church as the community at that time, so both like the body of believers in that particular institution, as well as the denomination, wasn't ready to have conversations about sexual identity or, you know, orientation because they felt that it was divisive from the word of God. And it was really interesting seeing like the juxtaposition of preaching, you know, a radical Christ against some of these like really respectable theological stances. Mm -hmm. And 
in those experiences where you were doing some of the educating and teaching, what felt most affirming to you personally in getting to do that in that context? It was probably two or threefold for me. One, like I trust my bold voice. Mm. <laughs> I had parents who affirmed and underscored my bold voice. They allowed me to challenge authority, including theirs. They allowed me to ask questions. They really rooted me in like one of my personal praxis, which is like to remain curious about everything that you know, not just like trust what you know and verify what you know, but also like remain curious. Like I do transformative justice and restorative justice and conflict transformation facilitating. And so like I'm the expert in the room, but also like remaining curious about the process. So having my parents affirm who I was, regardless of who I was or what I grew into or what I grew out of, knowing that like they always supported me really helped me feel affirmed in those spaces. Also having family members who worked in institutional roles within the church really helped because I would like challenge the institution and challenge leadership and they would like be like, okay, well, her family is like third generation of this church and one of her family members is in like senior leadership and, and you know, so that helped a little. And then also just reading things for my own interpretation and not always being satisfied with what, you know, a male hetero interpretation of a radical Christ is to my Black queer youth self. Thank you, Jess. I'm curious about one specific part of what you just said when you mentioned that people allowed a challenge of their authority. I would love to hear kind of how that panned out, because I think in some cultures, when they hear challenge of authority, that's an immediate red flag. That's an immediate problem. But in other cultures and other situations, it is viewed as a healthy thing, that this is important for us to listen to critiques and take them into account and may not necessarily agree with them, but at least to hear and to consider. What did it look like in those situations for you where there was a healthy challenge of authority? What was the response on the part of the leadership or the people in authority? So I remember in particular, like in our youth group, we were divvied up into boys and girls. And in the boys group, they were talking like about, you know, how to build a legacy and, you know, maintaining strong friendships and continuing their education and developing hobbies and all this other stuff. And then in the girls group, they were like, yeah, keep a penny between your knees and don't let it drop. And if you lose your virginity before marriage, mind you, these are people whose children were at their weddings. If you lose your virginity before marriage, it's a smudge on your window that can never come out. So my, you know, curious self, I was like, well, where does it say that in the Bible? Like, is that your modern day interpretation of a text that we've lost some things in translation through the centuries? Or like, is there a scripture where like you can say, Jesus said, if I have sex before I get married, never mind the fact that, you know, a lot of y'all are not married and you still have kids. Like were the kids delivered? Not by the hospital, but like the story. Nope. <laughs> that was a, that was a jab. That's okay. I'm still, I'm still healing from that church hurt. I was really confronted by like the hypocrisy of it all. And so I kind of like self emboldened myself. And when I did, I noticed that like people would not challenge me challenging their authority unless they felt like it was rooted in disrespect. But I think part of that was like my privilege of having been in that particular church community for like several generations having family members who were in leadership and then also like being kind of sly as a teenager and being like, well, I'm just, I'm curious. It's not meant to be disrespectful. I just want to know where God said that I'm going to hell if I have sex because you're standing in front of me and I don't see 
a ring or a spouse. So I'm wondering, you know, like, is our heaven and hell actually real? That was a little too far, you know, for them. But they allowed for my teenage curiosity to shape how I showed up in those spaces. I think that was also because they anticipated me, like, going into ministry. There was a little bit of grooming to, like, you know, a pre-ministerial track, and I almost followed it. Mm. (laughs) So that's probably also why they allowed for that. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I love the boldness that you've clearly had from a young age that comes through. And that's, that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. I imagine there are times that boldness also worked to your disadvantage. And so when you think about either your experience in that congregation in your formative years, or again, you've done a lot of work just in ministry, denominational ministry after that as well. So however you want to play it, when you think about that, what were the moments or experiences that you had that did not feel affirming to who you were as a person, to your to your identity and to your faith? I remember distinctly being told by like adults, either who were in leadership or, you know, who just had access to people who were in leadership, that being queer or gay or trans or non-binary or anything besides like the heteronormative culture that the church relies on to kind of like sustain this text that was from centuries ago and then feeling shame for that and then seeing like openly gay people like I know these people are gay you know either because I've seen them out with their partner or someone who could be perceived to be their partner or just because like that it's kind of like you know a cultural family thing like you know Uncle Bobby that's not his roommate but there being a shame around it and seeing how people separate like I think that especially in faith communities of color, we really lean into like only what you do for Christ will last. And there's sort of a divorcing of like our humanity from the labor that like the church insists that we offer for free for whatever reason. And uh, I noticed that with a particular person in the church who was known to be gay, that there was a celebration and a welcoming and an affirmation and, you know, a seeking out of their talents and skills because they were really skilled in music. But that didn't transfer over to, like, who they were as a person. So I noticed, like, early on that the culture of the church that I was in was not inclusive or affirming, but that there were pockets that I could find that were, you know, I have friends that I met in the youth group. I think a couple of them are probably, you know, on the podcast as well, who are now openly out. I myself am like openly out, but it's been just really interesting reflecting on the culture of the time and then being able to point to like specifics, like them saying over and over, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman where there's like that implicit thing, you know, and it's almost like a microaggression where it's not intended necessarily to wound or pierce, but it's a reminder of like the culture that you agreed to be in as part of whatever social capital you're interested in, in that particular institution. And then just being beat over the head with like, well, when are you getting married? When are you having kids? And I'm like, the cost of living, the cost of living in the nineties was too high for me as a child. economy. I I can't imagine. (laughs) I cannot imagine. So yeah, there were always reminders, whether it was implied or explicit. It's really interesting just like reflecting back on all of it. And then having to bring to light what my interpretation of things that are presented as just being the culture or the norm as like a queer black film and being like, Hey, the intent for this might've been this, but the impact is like excluding these people who 
still need spiritual care, still deserve a community of people who are concerned with their well-being. But how does that translate when I'm not asking you to like sign off and be a witness at my big gay wedding, but your core belief is that like I should not be able to be who I am and for what? I really appreciate you sharing as vulnerably as you did. And I want to highlight a couple of things that are standing out to me. And then I'm curious, Matt, if you have any follow-up questions. Two things that have stood out to me so far about what you've shared, Jess, are the intersection of kind of heteronormative purity culture ideals and beliefs that might be, at the very least, not affirming to people that identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community. There's like a unique intersection there of values and ideas and beliefs that is fascinating and also kind of tragic. And I also love that you named your experience within the context of the black church tradition. Because so often when we have these discussions about if a congregation is open and affirming or they're not, a lot gets lost. There's a lot of nuance, a lot of context that is just completely lost, right? And so I think it's important to just name that the stories we're hearing are from a very specific context and tradition that shape the experiences. And yeah, there's a lot of similarities you can put onto other traditions, but there are also some things that are fairly unique that are worth hearing, but we want to note that uniqueness. And so I just appreciate you highlighting kind of both of those things for our reflection. Yeah, I'm curious about, this may seem like a really dumb question, (laughs) but it's meant from a place where I think some people who haven't thought through this, it might be an earnest question and an important one. What is it like to understand your identity in a certain way and then to hear preached from the platform, the love of Christ, the affirmation of all humanity, but then the disconnect between how you view yourself and the Jesus that is being preached from the pulpit. What are kind of the choices you have in that moment of what to do with that information? So I am of the radical belief that like, because of who I am, I deserve to aggressively defend my humanity. That can be uncomfortable for some people who were only taught to like assert or only go into the rooms that you're welcome. No, my ancestors built all this you know, and it's all on stolen land by stolen people. So there's really not much that you can say to like pivot me from aggressively defending my humanity. Because of that, I internalize some things and ignore others. And that's simply for like my own self-preservation, you know, for my self-care. I was the person who was like deeply engaged in predominantly white faith spaces and was having those difficult conversations and was helping people break down, you know, their biases and their long held traditions and beliefs and seeing how, you know, all of these things affect black and brown and indigenous and, you know, all of the other communities of color. And I was exhausting myself, you know, and uh, it kind of reminded me of like Toni Morrison saying like the very function of racism is to serve as a distraction. I believe that strongly with all of the ways that my identities intersect, you know, so the function of homophobia is distraction, the function of organized, untrue, uh, unwelcoming religion is distraction, People inside of institutions can only do what the institution allows. Mm. I am not someone who believes in the structure of institution because of how the power inside of those institutions has come to be. So I'm careful with 
what I allow myself to internalize because I understand like the power of my rage. It's not just my individual rage. I'm a part of a community. I'm a part of a collective. So if I hurt and I build relationships with people, they share that hurt. So I have to be careful with that. But in that same vein, like I had to get to a point and I was like, what am I doing this for? You know, how does this actually serve me? If I am someone who does not center whiteness, if I'm someone who does not center um, things that are outside of my radical abolitionist critical lens, then why are these words having such an impact on me? I would rather use my energy working on policy, working on organizing, working on empowering the people who are going to be struck by these words, who choose to stay in those institutions for whatever reason, you know? And even for people who look like me, who are Black with, you know, coarse hair, who adhere to those institutional standards, there's grace and forgiveness for that as well. Because Uncle Tom was a trauma survivor. We're all surviving trauma in ways that we believe will either keep us or the people that we are responsible for safe. Mm -hmm. I choose not to let those words pierce me as often as they used to so that I can keep myself and others safe. There's plenty to be distracted by. There's plenty to be wounded by. I won't be wounded by someone wielding a word that the Christ that I know has also placed on my heart. God is not a God of lying. You know, God don't lie. (laughs) You might have to get a riddle to get over the the bridge from the troll that's underneath, but God is not a lying God. That has not been my personal relationship or expectation or involvement with God. So if someone presents something that seems antithetical to what God has spoken to my Black queer radical heart, I don't pick it up. And they can call that what they'd like. People can say that we are picking and choosing which part of the text to live out and be a part of. And also as someone who is like famously anti-institution, it's just not something that has the power to shift me like it did. Now, I'll use my knowledge of the institution to help others who desire to be in that space and who need some additional power or social capital for it. But for me, like I'm behind a brick wall. The church, I don't have any more room for church hurt. And for those who do, like organize, organize, figure out what your game plan is, organize, 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 and be willing to like go into a room and flip over a table because I've had to do that, too. When two of my friends were facing ordination and they wanted to deny one because they wanted him to go back into the field for another year. And they wanted to deny the other because she was divorced and said that she would use her ordination as a chance to possibly marry same-sex couples. Had to go in against senior leadership and say, you don't have the power over me as a parishioner anymore. Like, I'm coming with my Black queer radical full self. And if you feel as strongly about not getting them in as I do about defending these Black people, then we can go head to head. But my rage won that day because their commitment to inequity wasn't as strong as my commitment to the balance Mm. and the righteousness of it all. Mm. I love when guests preempt my next question and you did that entirely. You already answered it and you only know you answered it. So thank you for that. I was going to ask what advice you would have for those that are bold defenders of their humanity like you are, that still find meaning and choose to be in congregational spaces. So I'll tell you what I heard you say. And then if you want to add anything to that, feel free to add to it. What I heard you say is that you need to at times be ready to flip a table like Christ did. You need to organize, organize, organize. 
And you don't have to hold everything someone hands you, right? You get to check if it aligns with your spirituality, your personhood, and your own unique experience of the divine. And if it doesn't, you get to say no thank you and keep it moving. All of which I think are really powerful. But is there anything else you would add to those that are like yourself in those institutions that also want to defend their humanity? Self-care, self-care and aftercare is key. I noticed for myself that when I was having a lot of these conversations and I was being really vulnerable for institutions who are just built off of like capitalist consumption cycles, that I wasn't caring for myself afterwards. So I found myself drained. I would still find myself trying to like push through. And that's when you get to burnout and just, you know, stuff falls through the cracks that you used to have a really good grip on. So I would definitely say self-care. Like if Jesus can retreat to the garden, you know, let's just be like, hey, don't talk to me. <laughs> don't talk to me. It's a lot going on right now. I just need five minutes, five minutes. Like, I'm like, I wish people would pick up on those themes, you know, in the New Testament where Christ just had to be separated from people to go into a state of like deep reflection. I wish there was more emphasis on, not necessarily from like individualism, but for like, Self-preservation, like there's a lot of obsession with not only purity culture, but also prosperity culture. You know, like what does it mean to be spiritually prosperous? What does it mean for us to be able to interpret and to share and to hold things ourselves? Because we might not always have access to ordained ministers or texts or songs. You know, we might have to resort to our ancestral ways. So just really encouraging people to lean in deep to self-care and self-care isn't always like those again the capitalist consumption of things self-care could be oh i don't have it in me to clean my house let me pay somebody to clean my house you know let me have a meal delivered let me plan a vacation for myself let me plan a staycation for myself you know something for you that's going to sustain you that's going to shift you into a state of ease because these systems <laughs> the church included like they are wicked mm-hmm. now the church itself the institution of church like the institutional name of the church it's wicked because that's what it relies on. We're talking about like the nonprofit industrial complex and all of the things that contribute towards it and are less focused on like a social balance and equity and more focused on like development and endowment funds. So preserve yourself and don't push through your burnout. Thank you. So Jess, I wish I could spend another half an hour just asking you questions because there's so much wisdom and strength that I truly believe people need to hear. And I'm aware of the time constraints that we have in this podcast. So usually when we wrap up, we ask people how others can get in contact with them and follow their work. So I'll ask you that and offer an additional question. You can answer either or both. Are there organizations um, or people doing good work in this sphere and field that you would also encourage others to check out, follow, or support? As part of my self-preservation, I tend to keep like my socials pretty private, but if people are interested in engaging further, they're welcome to engage in any of the organizations that I'm either a part of or consulting with. Indy 10, Black Lives Matter on Facebook, Queering Indy on Facebook, the Louisville Community Bail Fund, and the Central Indiana Community Foundation, specifically the CREF Fund, which is launching this fall. That is exciting. 
Yes, it is. As far as people that they should follow, I say like, look to women and femmes, you know, like the men and the mask presenting people, they absolutely have it. And also I think that if we look at folks who are systemically marginalized and then like we really dig deep into those marginalizations, we're going to find the answers and the language for things that like people are trying to reinvent the wheel for. Like everything that the institution believes needs to be created or launched, I guarantee you like a black or brown woman or film is already running it at a grassroots level, um, right? even at an institutional level. And we need to listen to and trust black and brown women in film specifically. Reverend Chesla Nicholson, celebrated friend of mine. Yes, 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 yes. A sexuality educator, a person who really has a heart for people and won't let anybody get away with any mess, including her friends. And Reverend Daphne Gascott Arias. My dear friend from Puerto Rico, who has served churches, has supported a family, is getting ready to give birth, you know, the magic of motherhood all over again, and is working on her PhD, and is just a complete bad AWS. Marvelous. Thank you for those recommendations, and thank you again for just offering us and blessing us with your time, your wisdom, and your perspective today. It's been an honor. Of course. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much, Jess. We're here today with Reverend Jason Powell, MDiv. Jason is an ordained minister, musician, singer, songwriter, recording artist, spiritual teacher, and author. And above all that, Jason is a friend of mine. We went to seminary together. And let me tell y'all, this man can sing. Not sing, he can sing. He's very gifted. So Jason, it is a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here in this space to just enlighten and share and bring some Hope to the world. And y'all can't see it, but in honor of spring, Jason and I are both wearing flowered collared shirts today. And so I just, I feel like I need to point that out for those that aren't seeing the video as well. It's a vibe. Uh, Jason, what else would you like to add to your introduction? What else do you want people to know about you before we jump into our conversation? You know, I would say I would want people to know that my heart is to be a conduit, you know, through which the love of heaven, like the love of the divine can reach humans. And so I always recognize my imperfections in being a conduit of divine love in my role as a parent, in my roles as a co-worker, in every role that I find myself in, in love relationships, wherever I find myself, I recognize my imperfections in being a conduit through divine love. But I think it is our posture and our positioning of desiring to be that vessel that helps us to release more love and light and wholeness in the world. And I think that's the point of this conversation to create space for wholeness. So I just want to just first and foremost, put that out there that I see myself as a conduit for wholeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. A conduit for wholeness. Shoot. That might be the episode title right there. We'll have to circle back to that. <laughs> Can you tell folks a little bit about your faith background? What tradition do you come from? What tradition do you currently serve in? Sure. So I grew up in a Baptist church, which 
after being involved with multicultural spaces, I began to learn that Black Baptist churches were a little different than maybe predominantly white Baptist churches or other kinds. But my Black Baptist church was probably very spirited compared to others. My grandparents were Seventh-day Adventists. My paternal grandparents were. My maternal grandparents were African Methodist Episcopal, also known as AME. So those were kind of the roots that I had in terms of spiritual upbringing. I also became involved with a Disciples of Christ Church during my high school years, which was also a very spirited Disciples of Christ Church. So in terms of the background that I come from, it's probably considered a bit conservative to some, but yet it wasn't to the extent of what some might experience in apostolic or Church of God in Christ circles, which was highly conservative, where you couldn't wear pants on Sunday or you couldn't go to the movies. That wasn't my experience. My experience was steeped in some kind of tradition, but not highly conservative, but not liberal. So it was kind of like middle of the road. I think also, though, I had my own influences that I pulled into my space as a young child. You know, people say a lot of negative things about Christian television, but it was a part of my formation as a kid. And also, I would say there were some new thought thinkers that influenced my perspective of the world, some metaphysical thinkers that influenced my perspective of the world, like Neville Goddard, like Charles Fillmore. These people kind of broadened me. I remember reading Napoleon Hill's stuff, Think and Grow Rich, and that kind of stuff just kind of talked about the power of belief and all of that. And so it kind of broadened my perspective of God because I saw God even in those materials as well. So all of that was a part of my childhood and later childhood. sounds like a very rich context and experience to come up in. So I appreciate you painting that picture for us. So this series of conversations is about hearing from members of the LGBTQ community that come from various faith contexts and learning what the experience is like. So I'm wondering, can you speak to both maybe in your past and present? What are those moments that felt really affirming to you as a person, to your faith, as you kind of carried your identity with you into these faith spaces? Definitely. So I will say for the past 16 plus years, I served as a worship minister at churches. So I was heavily involved in the life of the church and the theology of the church. For the past five years, from like 2016 to 2021, I served at an open and affirming church, Life Journey Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, which was my direct contact to open and affirming ministry for LGBTQ people, not only limited to LGBTQ people, but for all people, but had a very open and affirming space. And so that was my direct contact for really seeing the faith formation in a community of people, understanding the theological frameworks that supported their sense of self, that supported their identity, and what gave them the confidence and the authority to be who God created them to be. Seeing it lived out in healthy space was a huge blessing, not only for my own life, because it converged with a time where I was actually coming out and living into my truth. It was at the age of 20 years old that I actually got married 
to a woman. And we were best friends in high school, not anything overly romantic at all, actually. <laughs> but we found ourselves married, I think, in large part because of our God concepts and our sense of what was possible for us. We have since that time both come out. And she is remarried and I am a single man and we are both living in our truth as same gender loving people. And so it's kind of interesting to see how our paths converged and how they also, at the appropriate time, developed into more authentic versions of ourselves. And so I find myself now with a perspective of having served in churches that were not open and affirming, don't ask, don't tell, not overly condemning. The ones that I was in were not overly condemning, although if you go through the archives, you will see messages that are not endearing to LGBTQ plus people. But based upon my own sense of self, it didn't necessarily crush my spirit because of, like I was sharing before, my self-concept and my God concepts were always a little bit beyond the confines of the religious institution that I was in. And so I think what is necessary is for people to pull in the resources they need that support them for where they are. Like, we can't always expect people to just spoon feed us. If we are after freedom, we've got to have something within ourselves that reaches for it. You know, there's something that says that when you pursue something, it's a qualifier. So I find in my journey, I've pursued my understanding to reach freedom. And so people have to pursue understanding to reach freedom. Did you know you were going to preach this morning or you just, you stay ready? <laughs> you know, if something is in you, it just comes out. <laughs> it, does. it does. And we're blessed for it. So I appreciate it. So I absolutely understand the importance of pursuing those resources and those things that will help. But we also hear, or at least I have heard, just stories of how people really wrestle with coming out, living into their truth because of the people around them who aren't necessarily open to that or have some qualms or some serious reservations. And I'm just curious about what were maybe some key relationships for you that were beneficial in this, where you felt the acceptance, where you felt the ability to work through your identity as you were forming it? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't expect to think about this reference, but as you say it, I think about an example of someone who was very important to me, who was not an example of what I necessarily wanted to live into, but showed me what I needed to work on. So I'm talking about a person who was my music teacher, my piano teacher during my high school years. He was also serving as a worship minister at a church. And this individual was an LGBTQ plus person, but not out in terms of being affirmed by the church at all, because that wasn't really a possibility in terms of his context. And so I saw the inner struggle that he had, and it manifested in ways that related to perhaps depression, overeating, chronic you know, illnesses that I look back now and I see as a direct result of his inability to fully embrace the authenticity of who he was as a gay man and being so closely connected to the people of the church and having to deny that I saw as something that I don't want to experience. He is no longer 
with us. And in my heart, I really believe that had he been able to live in his authentic self and come to peace with himself, it would not have led to his early death. And so I think about people mm. like him that were key relationships in my life that I feel like God put in my space to show me, okay, you have a responsibility to foster life. And fostering life is not always just about physical reproduction. Fostering life is about the health of the mind, the soul, and the spirit, right? And so if I'm going to foster life in the work that I do, I've got to not only find freedom for myself, but I've got to also lead others there. And I'll just call his name. I know he's no longer here and some people might not like for me to call his name, but I'll call it anyway. His name is Tim Bratton. And he was a music teacher in the city of Indianapolis. And so I see examples like that and it shows me that we've got work to do. He blessed a lot of people, but what can our souls and our lives accomplish if we really enter a space of true affirmation, true understanding? I think also what you talked about in terms of relationships, it deals with subconscious impressions and subconscious beliefs about self and life. And I think so many times the relationships we attract either form healthy subconscious beliefs or unhealthy subconscious beliefs. And when we are able to identify unhealthy subconscious beliefs, sometimes that requires us separating from relationships that feed an unhealthy self-image. And so I think when we're able to appreciate the healthy relationships that we have and also dissect what is unhealthy, we have to create space. We have to create space for the relationships that foster healthy subconscious beliefs so we can create the lives that express freedom, affirmation, and wholeness, spirit, soul, and body. Hmm. That's really rich, really rich. And it's it's encouraging for me, really interesting for me to hear you talk about your teacher. And it's interesting because as I think about like my own formation in church and religious spaces, it's easy to think about the pastors. It's easy to think about the first ladies of the church. It's easy to think about my youth ministers, right? But to kind of move beyond that into like secondary, tertiary connections and think about those other folks that influenced us in ways that maybe they didn't even know they were influencing us. As like an imaginative exercise, it feels really beneficial. And so I just, I appreciate you offering that because it's going to give me some things to chew on and just reflect on as I wonder who have been the people that have formed me and how have they formed me? Were they even aware they were forming me, right? And it's just kind of beautiful. It, yes, it is. And I feel like the unfolding experiences of our life are constantly showing us what our path is. You know, I even experienced that with interpersonal close relationships, right? People are reflecting back to us what journey we're on and what choice we have to live into more wholeness. And so I feel like this conversation, you know, is an aspect of the wholeness that we are being called to journey. On. And it's a collective journey, right? Like yeah. there's the individual journey, but yet there's also the collective journey. And I think this podcast speaks to the collective journey that we're on. Mm -hmm. Amen. So, so Jason, Jason, I'm wondering, wondering as you think about this topic, but also your broader hopes for liberation, what is fueling your hope? What is fueling my hope? Oh my God. So when I look at some of the great movements that have happened, spiritual movements that have happened in the past, like the 90s and the early 2000s and gospel music and spiritual preaching and revival, one of the things that I feel like we didn't have in those movements is an inclusive understanding of God's love, okay? So you have people that preached about 
many wonderful things, preached about salvation. And you see the droves of people coming in and giving their hearts to God, right? You have people that preach about healing even, or people that preach about the prospering power of God, or people that preach about the power of the mind to create good in the world. These are the kinds of things that I was very steeped in and that inspired me personally to go after God and to, you know, go after spirit. But what we didn't see in that you know, we saw all those revelations as they would call them, right? And so they'd get these revelations and they'd lean into them and they would manifest them, but you didn't see a revelation of the inclusive love of God. So one of the hopes that I have that fuels me is that in the next few decades, we are going to see a resurgence, I believe, prophetically, we're going to see a resurgence of spiritual revival. But this spiritual revival, I personally believe, will be different because it's going to draw in the inclusive love of God, not the exclusive love of God, which will be the differentiating factor, I believe, in the next quote unquote move of God. And so I think people who have an understanding and a revelation of inclusive love, in other words, when I say inclusive love, I mean, it's not based on our dogmas, our doctrines, our sects that exclude people from God's realm of wholeness, love, power, help, all that is needed for a good life. It doesn't exclude, but it includes through what we call the finished work of Christ, right? Because that's the unifying factor that brings all into the love of God. It's not through our works of righteousness, as people might call them, but it's through the finished work of Christ bringing all into that whole realm, right? So that's what fuels me, the hope that what is to come includes all of the good that has been, but yet includes this understanding of God that is not bound to religion but mm. is liberated through relationship. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Amen for liberation through relationship. Yes. Jason, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I feel blessed even in this short conversation. If people want to learn more about you or follow your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yes, you can do several things. One, you can go to jasonpowell.faith that's online and provide your name and your email so we can stay connected. Also, there are some options that speak to more of what I've talked about. There is a PDF guide that you can get from me that talks about how LGBTQ gay Christians have other options besides denial and condemnation. And I would love for those of you who are interested to go and get that. You can go to my YouTube channel, that's jasonpowell.faith and go to the about section. And the first link will be LGBTQ options. You'll click on that link link and you'll be able to receive that PDF. But it's about how we have other options besides denial and condemnation. It's for allies as well. Those who want to be equipped with greater understanding of how to be a part of this inclusive move of spirit in the earth. And so I invite you to do that. Go to jasonpowell.faith on YouTube, the about section, the first link, and you'll see it. Thank you again, Jason. It's been a pleasure, my guy. Thanks, y'all. It was awesome.
Hey everyone, I am joined today by Darren Calhoun. Darren is a justice advocate, worship leader, and artist based out of Chicago, Illinois. He works to bridge connections between people of different perspectives through story and relationship. Currently, Darren is the digital pastor and worship leader at Urban Village Church, and he serves in multiple capacities with organizations like Christians for Social Action, the Reformation Project, and the Q Christian Fellowship. Darren, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely glad to be here. So, you know, this is a rich topic, and it's been fun to do the various interviews that we've done with folks, but I'm really excited to hear your perspective about what your experience has been like in Christian spaces throughout your life. And so as you think about the spaces you grew up in and even the spaces you might work and move in today, can you talk about some moments that have felt affirming to your identity as a person and to your faith? Yeah. I mean, for me, when I first think about what it means to be on staff at the church where I work right now, I remember just looking at the job description. It was the only time I'd ever seen a job description that had that named being LGBTQ inclusive and being anti-racist as part of what it means to work at this organization. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, for real? Y'all want to get spicy in here? Okay. And so uh, just having that opportunity to be in a place where for the first time I would not have to be a liability. I wouldn't have to be explained. I wouldn't have to be, I don't know, some kind of anomaly that people would need to worry about. But instead, I could literally be this whole person that just showed up as just a normal person. I didn't know at the time that I didn't know what it meant to be normal. I thought it was normal for me to have to explain myself and to be this extra causality in the universe. Mm. But then I got to my church, it was like, oh, I'm not special. (laughs) (laughs) And that that sounds like a a powerful thing to get to live into. Truly, truly it is. Because it doesn't stop at oh, now you're normal and, you know, the world is all good. It literally is the beginning of me reframing what it meant to be accepted. Mm -hmm. Because for years I'd spent time doing work in organizations and spaces where as long as you weren't the wrong kind of gay, at the time I was publicly known as being abstinent, which people read as celibate, as long as you weren't one of those practicing homosexuals, then you could have access and fluence and do the things that you felt called to do. But if you messed up, if you took a picture in front of a rainbow flag at Target, someone was going to object to it, post about it and all these other things. And it was just like, no, this, all that is over. All that is, Mm -hmm. is not the case here. So now who will you be, Darren, if you don't have to perform a certain kind of righteousness and Christianity for people who aren't invested in your life. Mm. Like, who do you get to be if you can just be someone who's beloved of God, who happens to be gay? Yeah. I had never thought about that, ever. Mm. (laughs) Mm. And finding that there's a normal to be, finding that there's a place for me to be who I am, for me to use my gifts and to not have to always be explaining myself, which is a whole trauma response we could get into later. Yeah, Having space to be myself meant that I had to get to know myself. 
I had to get to know myself apart from the guy who I was always has to explain who he is and why he does. And before I do anything, have three explanations ready for when people object. Who am I when I don't have to watch every single interaction that I have and don't have to feel limited? And if someone does pay attention to me, it was like, oh, no, no, no. I need to stay selfless and single for the Lord. It's just like, no, I have an opportunity to be awesome. I have an opportunity to really expand my wings and to do all that I do. And that has been kind of what this road has been. It's just like, okay, well, if I can do anything, what will I do? You know, how will I lead worship? How will I make music? How will I tell stories and invite people into what they're doing? And that has been transformative for me. I mean, I feel like I'm like just like reveling in the moment, but yeah, there's been some good stuff going on. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like the moment you realized and asked yourself this question, who will you be, Darren, was a genesis for you in a way. And you're maybe still living into that genesis and what that means for you. Right. And I think too often... And I've seen this, whether it's a progressive congregation, a conservative congregation, even an undecided. Too often the conversation is, what does the Bible say? Yeah. And once we figure out what the Bible says, then this whole whole mess will be behind us and we can just move on with Jesus. And what I've found is that it's not needed for us to just have the final say on what the Bible says about same-sex sexual activity, because that's usually what the debate is. What's more important to the average LGBTQ person in a congregation is, can I be a full, living, beloved part of this church? And if you say, oh, of course you can, where can I find the policies that protect and maintain that access for me? Mm. Because if I have to be serving in a small group for two years before I find out that I'm not even welcome to be a small group leader, you know, if I have to be singing my heart out in the choir for four years before you tell me, oh, but you could never be a worship leader here, you know, where is the part where your church has done the work to align what it believes, the scripture says, with the policies that should be written just as clearly so that I know what kind of church I'm walking into and what kind of limitations they're going to be on me. Mm. Because even progressive churches who feel like, oh, we did the work, we love gay people, and the Bible says so, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) sometimes haven't gone as far to make sure that if there's a question about who uses what bathroom, that you have a policy to go with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's real. My perception of congregations and really people in general is that at some point we get to a place in which we think we've answered the big questions, so we stop mm-hmm. asking questions, period. Yeah, And then we just, our blind spots just continue to exist until someone comes along and forces us to see them. Do you find that resonates with what you've observed in congregational life? Oh, it's everywhere, right? It's in my life. It's in my friend circles, but it's especially true in places that live and thrive on policy. Mm. That's why I spend so much of my energy now focusing in on what are the policies of our churches and our institutions, because we can chatter all day about how we want to be inclusive, how we want to be anti-racist. But if there's not a line item budget number attached to what we believe, 
then we don't really care about it. We don't believe mm -hmm. it. It's not going to get the same priority as the annual potluck or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because there are things that do have written policy. There are things that do have budget. But what we usually do is we try to lump LGBTQ things. We try to lump our racial justice things. We try to lump those into something else. And usually the things that get lumped into something else disappear as soon as we forget about it that year. Mm. You know, when we build policy, when we build things that are actually about making sure that we are affirming everyone, that includes making something that the institution itself has to account for. Yeah. It's very separate than, oh, we're never going to forget about Pride Month. Well, if you had a Pride Month budget, you couldn't. <laughs> and again, I'm not saying we need to like have a, a $10,000 budget to walk in the Pride Parade every year. I love that my church walks in the Pride Parade. It is the, one of the most uplifting things that I can do as somebody who stands in front of the anti-gay protesters and who's mm -hmm. like, you know, countering their message. And then... As they're like, you're not even a Christian over their bullhorns. Here comes 400 of my church yeah. <laughs> marching yeah. through the parade. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think your opinion <laughs> matters right now. <laughs> so it's the part where our faith meets action, right? Yeah. And where my church policy then has the ability to meet our faith. Mm. You know, it's so critical that we do more than just have the 2022 version of everyone's welcome here. I really want to see what welcome means. I want to know who can be here. I want to know how we're going to protect someone who is being called out or being objected to. I want to know if someone wants to be an elder or a teaching pastor in our church, is that okay and why? Like, mm. what tells me that everyone has access regardless of gender if I can't find anything that says there's access regardless of gender? <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, so the policy becomes really paramount for signaling those things and for bringing everyone back to a common, like, focal point. When there's disagreement, we can say, hey, right. this is the written policy. Now, if we want to change it, all right, we can go through the process to change it, but, like, this is where we're starting from, and so we got to wrestle with this. Yeah. And the other thing about policy is that the policy needs to be written with us in the room. Julie Rogers was so great about kind of uplifting that value of the flip side is essentially what happens too often is a bunch of cisgender heterosexual people who are typically white will sit in a room and write their most compassionate and well-intentioned and loving and Jesus-like document about what the policy of the church will be. Yeah. And they'll say, this is the church's policy. And the very first LGBTQ person that reads it does not read it with all that love and care that they thought they put in it. Mm. And they're like, but we, but we worked for months on this. I literally had a church tell me, but we spent two years on this document. Okay, but none of the people who this document applies to are in this room. Yeah, And so when you tell me we love you and we want you to feel cared for in our church, and I'd already been a part of this church for 10 years at that point. When you tell me you want me to feel cared for in this church and then you write a document and I tell you this document doesn't care for me. And they're like, but we spent so much time on it. We can't change it now. 
you've told me what the priority was. It was not that you create something that is about caring for people who are like me. It was that you created something for you and by you. (laughs) And it was for cisgender, straight, mostly white people and by cisgender, straight, mostly white people. And maybe that's the place you want to be. And if that's the place you want to be, by all means, go for it. Just go ahead and make it clear. Let's just say it. We're not going to debate about it. Name it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love the frame that you're bringing here because I think it applies to almost any issue that might face congregational life, right? Like, in what ways is a congregation or any community creating space for people to fully participate, right? To show up as they are and to be held as they are. And that to me is like one of the paramount questions of any sort of community, but it's one that often gets lost, I think, in the shuffle, often gets lost in the disagreements. But if it don't boil down to that, I don't know how many other things it can actually boil down to, you know? Yeah. And it's It's a call to action, right? It's an opportunity for us to go, oh, well, how did this happen? You know, what do we do? about Mm -hmm. this. Because sometimes you say, well, that's all who's on our board. These are all the people who make the decisions. If y'all don't go ahead and pull together a listening committee, if you don't find and seek out some people who are willing to, and you'll probably need to pay them even, but find some people who are willing to give you feedback on what the situation that's going on in an ongoing way is, then no, things will continue to be the same. And you'll just kind of rub your hands together and look down and and say, well, pray for us. And I think prayer without works <laughs> is still dead. One of the things yeah. that that church did, the one that I mentioned that had made this two years of policy, some of the top leadership did spend the next almost two years meeting every six weeks with a group of LGBTQ folks who had been a part of the church the whole time, 30 plus years. And in doing so, really began to relearn what the problems and what the issues were. And this was a non-affirming church, Mm -hmm. and there was no push from the queer folks for them to suddenly change their theology. But something as simple as if, for example, we were in a Sunday service and it came time to pass the peace. Now, this church, they would say, oh, everyone can pass the peace here. Of course, it's just passing of the peace. Mm -hmm. So when Jimmy passed the peace and says, this is my wife, Jane, it's passing the peace. But when Billy says, this is my husband, Jack, then it's a political Mm -hmm. uprising and someone trying to force the Mm -hmm. gay agenda. And, you know, all of a sudden there's so many more implications that the straight folks never thought about that someone else might have trepidation or a difficult time navigating because in so many places, the quote-unquote normal for you interactions are the places where we might get hate crimed. I mean, you know, that's kind of explicit language, but, but more so to say we have all kinds of places of unwelcome and all kinds of places of disdain. Again, we talk about bathrooms. I know as a cisgender man, I can go to the bathroom and it's typically not an issue. But for me, I actively look out for places that have all gender bathrooms or have something that's specifically 
speak to the bathroom policy because if I'm going to be able to bring my trans friends, if I'm going to be able to bring my non-binary friends to that church or that space, I don't want to have to manually go up and ask someone to find out if they can use the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I hear you inviting us to be mindful, again, of our blind spots and of what the experience of people who aren't part of the majority culture of a space, like how they might exist. Yeah. Thank you for that reminder. I've got one more question. Before I do, I want to invite you to share how people can follow your work and learn more about you. So social media handles or any other work that you do that you want to share. Take a second and let folks know how they can follow what you do. Yeah, apparently I stay pretty busy. So uh, one place that people may find me, well, you can always find me by searching out Hey Darren on pretty much any social media, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. My name is Darren Calhoun, Hey Darren. And if you would like to follow the music that I'm making with The Many, you can follow us on themanyarehere.com, where you can also connect to lots of other work we're doing. And then lastly, if you're in Chicago, there's some really, really great work that I'm part of at Urban Village Church. And as with many churches, we're all trying to figure out what's the next thing to do. How do we figure out online and in person and low attendance after the pandemic began? You know, we are all trying to figure these things out together. And I think being agile or being willing to experiment with things and try something different after a little bit is something that we're excelling at. So for any of those reasons, hit me up. Let's chat. Let's talk. And DarrenCalhoun.com is my website. So there's lots of places to find me. Excellent. Thank you for that, Darren. It's always important for people to know how to reach you and how to keep in touch with, you know, the work that you're doing because it's important stuff. Indeed. So for the final question, which I think will be a mic drop question. That's why I kind of (laughs) inverted the order of the way I usually do things. I like that. I appreciate it. (laughs) You mentioned earlier that you're in a space now where you have been able to ask the question of, okay, Darren, if you don't have to explain yourself all the time, who are you actually, right? And so I'm curious to know what you have discovered. Like, who are you, Darren? Oh, you want the juicy question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. What have you learned about yourself? So what's been very interesting is that after, I could say, a 20-year career, of doing all of that manual curating of my life to be acceptable and presentable, not unto God, but unto people who call themselves worshipers of God. And I'm not saying they're not worshipers, but to be acceptable and pleasing to them. When I stopped doing that, I still felt God's calling and still do to be in these in-between places, to reach people who are not explicitly at one end of the spectrum or other. But what I've done less of is reach out to these people who have conferences and books and video series and so much dedicated to them and to get back to actually reaching the people that haven't been quote unquote reached yet to show up for people at the margins. Mm. And so very recently I found myself as I get back in touch with myself, as I get back in touch with things that are most important to me, I'm figuring out what does it mean to do harm reduction? What does it mean to show up where people are probably at risk for all kinds of things um, when it comes to substance use, when it comes to sex work, when it comes to the folks that even queer spaces don't really want to talk about? Because 
my core belief yeah. is if we make life better for the sex worker who is using substances, who's trans and disabled and femme, we make life better for everybody. And that's kind of almost common knowledge, but we don't actually want those people showing up until they've cleaned up, until they've been sober for 90 days and all these other kinds of requirements that are make it easy for us, but make it impossible for them to get the kind of help that they need. Yeah. And so I'm finding myself in Jesus' name showing up and going out and being where the people are. And it looks less and less like Sunday morning sharp. <laughs> it looks more and more like, yeah. oh, no, I've got to be out on Thursday night and Friday night and Saturday night because that's where the people are rather than, well, Sunday morning is when we do our ministry work. It's like, nope, that's where you do your ministry work. But where I'm doing my work is where the people are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, as you were saying that, I couldn't help but flash back to the stories in the gospel narrative of Jesus dining with tax collectors and prostitutes and other folks described as sinners. I'm just right, saying. Like, <laughs> there's some biblical precedents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's beautiful work, man. So thank you again for joining me today and for joining this podcast and just sharing your lived experience. I trust that it will bless many that are listening and hopefully kind of continue the reflection process that needs to be happening in our, in our communities and our congregation. So I appreciate you taking the time today. Amen. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed those conversations as much as we did. Absolutely. And as we said earlier, we don't want to add many more words to the wisdom that was already shared, but rather we would love to hear from you. So if you want to just email us or hit us up on social media either way and let us know a moment or an insight that you're taking away from this podcast and from the interviews that you heard, that would be wonderful. So you can email us at podcasts at centerforcongregations.org, or you can hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as the Center for Congregations. And just a heads up, we're taking a few week break, kind of a mid-season break. We'll be back sometime in August with new episodes. So be on the lookout for those. And as always, we'd be remiss not to thank our audio editor and sound engineer, Jaden Lee. Jaden, thank you for the great work that you do. We really appreciate you. And we appreciate the generosity of the Lilly Endowment, which makes all of our work, including this podcast, possible. And if you find this podcast helpful and you think it might be helpful for others, we ask that you give us a five-star rating and review on whatever podcast platform you're on. That helps other people find the podcast, and it makes us feel really good. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. And finally, before we sign off for our mid-season break, we just want to give a shout out to our listeners in Kingston, Jamaica. I'm not going to do a terrible Jamaican accent because that would not only be offensive, but just not good. So I just want to say thank you to our listeners in Kingston. We appreciate you. And if you've got questions or ideas, email us. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Shout out Jamaica, the Center for Congregations. I'm Matt Burke. And I'm Ben Tapper. Take care, y'all. Thank you.